right, so welcome back to Cracks in Postmodernity. We have a very special guest, Tara Isabella Burton, who is the author of the book Strange Rights, as well as several other books, some new ones coming out soon, and has written many articles for different publications, including the New York Times, where I first discovered you. So Tara, thanks so much for coming on. Uh, thank you so much for having me. I'm delighted to be here. Awesome. So uh, for people who haven't read Strange Rights, can you explain what is the gist of the book and also what are what inspired you to write it? What experiences did you have that made you say you wanted to, to put out this book? Uh, hilariously, Strange Rights was almost written by accident, which is to say that I, um, I'd written a piece about cults uh, for uh, a British online magazine called uh, Aeon, and someone had reached out to me about maybe doing a kind of guide to cults and as the book proposal started for that, then suddenly another publisher was interested. And at that same time, I was working as the um, religion correspondent for, for Vox.com, that's with a V, not an F. Uh, and one of the sort of distinctive things about being the religion uh, correspondent for Vox is that I was covering a lot of sort of uh, traditional religion beats, especially this was 2017. So a lot of like Trump and evangelical story or Catholic uh, church sex abuse scandal stories. But I was also sort of covering by virtue of the readership and by virtue of the fact that I was in New York City and by virtue of the fact that I think they were very open to the on the beat. I was covering a lot of like witches hexing Trump and uh, yoga and self-care and other stories that perhaps at um, a larger outlet or an outlet with sort of more um, strict siloing might not have been religion stories, but were for a variety of reasons for me. Uh, and as this book project sort of started to take shape, I became less and less interested in uh, cults as traditionally conceived and more about, more interested in, in subcultures and ways in which uh, spiritual practice and religious practice, particularly for uh, millennials and younger, and in particular, uh, among the people who you might think of as progressive, though not exclusively, or simply, um, you know, living in cities, living a little, who are, who are not uh, in traditionally, uh, culturally religious environments, uh, what their religiosity looked like. And I think around the time that I was working, a lot of polls and studies came out um, kind of heralding the end of organized religion. Um, mm -hmm. About 25%, give or take, different, different um, polling systems have different numbers. But about a quarter of Americans uh, identify as N-O-N-E, nuns, the rise of the nuns was a big trope, or uh, spiritually unaffiliated. Uh, but if you actually started looking at those numbers and looking at other numbers, um, what I found is that the story of seeming secularization, the, the new secular age, in America at least, was really incomplete for two reasons. Uh, one was that uh, an astounding number uh, of people who put themselves as religiously unaffiliated First of all, uh, did not identify as an atheist or agnostic, and for what it's worth, uh, atheism is often historically underreported on polls, so that could mean something else. Yeah. But uh, about 72% of people who are unaffiliated said, I believe in something, uh, there's something out there. And about 20% said, I actually believe in, I think the poll put it as the Judeo-Christian God. So there's this just dynamic going on where people who are not affiliated with the religious tradition, who do not like organized religion, nevertheless profess faith either in some kind of deity or even in a classical the, the the god of classical abrahamic religion let's say mm -hmm. um on top of that something else that's, that was sort of equally if not more fascinating to me is that people who did put christian on the box or jewish on the box or muslim on the box um or, or form rather um their actual stated beliefs and practices were more diverse more eclectic than you might think um my favorite statistic that i like to trot out which i believe was from a pew study and i would like to say 2018 uh, was that around 
25 or so uh, Christians, self, uh, self-identified Christians, self-report believing in reincarnation. Hmm. Um, it was definitely, it was and with sort of similar numbers for, for uh, the power of crystals and things like that. Mm-hmm. And I think when you look, look kind of more broadly at these, these numbers and weigh them all together, and also look uh, on a sort of qualitative way at ways in which uh, our culture is suffused with spiritual language um, to, I think, an even greater degree than I certainly remember in my own lifetime, uh, we have us this sense that um, our spiritual lives um, may be drawn now from the language of uh, the sort of shared cultural language of wellness or the shared cultural language mm-hmm. of energy, but there is a kind of um, non-dogmatic but still discernible uh, religious ideology, something between an ideology and a sensibility yeah. that suffuses mm-hmm. how more and more of us, both formally spiritual but not religion, religious, as about 20% of the population identifies, and officially religious or not religious in a uh, in a particular tradition but still kind of mixing and matching and reimagining and what I call in the book remixing religious traditions to kind of suit them and the the takeaway from this the biggest uh change for me um which I argue is is deeply rooted in a kind of wider way that the internet has transformed our our sense of both self and faith is the idea that we're kind of all developing our bespoke religions we are um, all kind of the same way that our, our newsfeed curates exactly what we see based on our desires, that our the, the objects we buy are presented to us um, according to, you know, whatever algorithms figure out what we like. So too are um, the ways in which we think about our, our relationships to one another, to a, a hypothetical creator, to the energy out there, whatever, mm-hmm. uh, however you want to describe it. All of this is kind of all of this revolves on this narrative that um, religion is something that I should make for myself to sort of serve my need of self-actualization. And I think that there's two distinct things that, that come from that. And one is that um, religion becomes deeply personal, deeply what I call intuitionalist, um, that, 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 you know, every person kind of has, every person who exists in this culture um, to a greater or lesser extent, I think has been encouraged to develop their own religion. Uh, the degree to, of course, which people sort of participate in that can be greater or lesser depending on other factors. Um, but secondly, I think that this religious sentiment does have the character of a distinct um, ideology that you can sort of say, it's not just that everyone has their own religion, but there are certain um, tenets to this. And this idea that I um, I must look inward to find my truest self, uh, that that truest self is somehow linked to a, a nebulous energy out there in the universe that wants me to do well or wants me to flourish in a way that has to do with temporal happiness and that other people uh, and particularly society as like broadly construed mm-hmm. are more likely than not to be a danger uh, or a hindrance on that journey that uh, externalities um social familial uh cultural are limitations on a self-expression of our truest self that allows us to kind of link up with what the divine wants for us. And I think you can see the roots of that particular, uh, well, of course, there's always sort of broader enlightenment roots to everything. Uh, but I particularly see the genesis of this in 19th century transcendentalism and the rise of new thought in the 19th century. And uh, basically this distinctive American uh, religious tradition or like proto-religious tradition, uh, combine it with the internet and you get the present moment. Yeah, and I, you talk a lot about these kinds of spiritual positions in a way emulating certain fandoms of celebrities or certain pop culture phenomena. And I'm, I'm seeing this not only with 
religion and spirituality, but also with political positions, with moral positions that we take on. Oftentimes, they don't actually reflect our the way we live our everyday lives or are not the, the product of some kind of coherent, rational thought process, but it's an attempt to project this, um, or to signal, as we say, virtue signal, our tribal belonging, that we're part of some entity that transcends ourselves. And this is why I think people are so adamant about posting it on the internet, making it known that these positions we we claim to take on are signaling that we're part of something, that we're not alone in the cosmos, um, to quote Walter Percy. Yeah. And I think that as we've become kind of more disembodied, uh, not just in terms of internet use, but in terms of the ways in which our social relationships are less and like less likely to be structured by where we live, our neighbors on our mm-hmm. block, uh, our our extended our larger extended families as 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 families get smaller, uh, suddenly uh, we have the potential through the internet uh, a potential that like in many ways is great. I've made so many of my friends on Twitter, uh, but that allows us to kind of create close dense tribes mm-hmm. that uh where we kind of all know each other or know of one another in as if we were living we were sort of living in a small town alongside wherever we actually live um and these communities are sort of what i find fascinating often founded on certain kinds of affinity and i think mm-hmm. that there's one way of looking at it which is saying this is just you know uh, an example of affinity and desire taking over our culture such that you know even our tiny polities are affinity driven now um but i think that there's another way of looking at it that um the way in which uh, one might discover uh, a community of shared values that might indeed mimic sort of more traditional shared values communities uh is to find them online and i and certainly anecdotally uh the internet communities that i've been part of um so, some some of which involve uh, my religious life some of which do not um have often successfully kind of functioned, maybe not as like an extended group of friends, I think it's slightly too big for that, but a kind of a community that does function as a community mm-hmm. where it has the potential for offline friendship, it has the potential for real friendship, uh, as well as being a kind of locus of, of discussion. So I, I don't want to say yeah. it's a, a uniformly bad thing. Yeah, no. And I mean, I think a lot of it, like you said, it's this this product of this disembodiment from um, very concrete, tangible forms of shared life of community. And I don't know, like, it, I, I noticed this even in myself, like the, the positions, the beliefs we claim to espouse, again, like they're, they tend to be the fruit of, like you said, an affinity, a kind of taste that we have, the projection of some kind of internal um, predilection versus the fruit of some experience or something that's happened to us. And I, again, I see for myself a lot of the times, like I'll claim to believe something, but there's this huge cognitive dissonance between what I'm saying I believe and how I actually live. You know, you can see this in someone who's super critical of consumer capitalism and yet buys, you know, all these kinds of things that are advertised to them that have no real point. Like, whereas someone who claims to be a very devout Christian and, you know, again, it's like we act in ways that often contradict what we say we believe. And I think, again, it's this is what tends to happen when our beliefs are not so much rooted in something that's happened to us or something that we experience every day versus this projection of something internal out into the world, you know. Um, but I was I wanted to go back to what you were saying about and how this kind of uh, this explosion of different options that we have, like it, it makes me think of Charles Taylor, right? No, you know, you've uh, you've looked a lot into who's a huge inspiration for me like he talks about this kind of nova effect that's happened where there's a plethora of options that we can choose from 
Um, and in a way, like it's a reaction to this this experience of dis disenchantment, this kind of um, this modern moral order that he talks about, where things are kind of just purely rationalistic, kind of flat. Um, so I don't know. What, what can you say about how a lot of the, the new kind of forms of spirituality we're seeing today are a reaction to this this feeling that everyday life is disenchanted or kind of empty? Um, so my answer is twofold, uh, and I'll sort of play my, uh, betray my hand here that uh, Charles Taylor was a huge influence on me and has been since since my grad school days. Um, but I think I think that there is a kind of double a double reality, which is to say, I think that a lot of us will talk about and a lot of people do talk about a loss of enchantment as some to talk about a certain kind of alienating or uh, element of contemporary culture um that there is there is something missing that there is something lost that there is something that feels as you say empty and yet i'm i'm always wary of calling that a loss of enchantment uh in part because i don't think we are uh as disenchanted as we either like to or worry about thinking so much as we've relocated that enchantment and i think we are uh we have you know if you want to pick a starting point, you could say the Renaissance onwards, but the sort of the modern condition, I think, is a relocating of the idea of enchantment from something that exists uh, in the world that comes or, or that comes from God, but is very much a kind of something. It may suffuse everything, including us, but it is its source is outside us to this idea that um, our what that that enchantment is particularly internal or almost indistinguishable from certain distinctly um, human features. Um, I believe, and this is the argument of my next book, that we have relocated enchantment in human desire. Um, obviously, there's, there's, there's narratives of this that will say it's, you know, it's, it's human reason or it's, it's uh, the human will. Um, but um, I think that we've come to a place where uh, what we want, um, what, we, what we feel and how that feeling transforms itself into like the, our, what, excuse me, the way in which what we feel um, motivates us to act towards um, our goal of quote unquote self-actualization um, is I think coded both implicitly and sometimes explicitly in our culture as magical or divine. I mean, there's a, there's a sort of fascinating tradition uh, both in, in European and American thought and these parallel strains of talking about um, the sort of inner self as, as either divine or magical or possessed of magic powers. This is of course a huge part of like the new thought tradition in yeah. 18th century America where, you know, we can connect with the, the, I think the language of energy suffuses both narratives. Like we can connect with the, this energy in the universe by looking inward. Um, and I think that um, if we do accept that uh, we are seeing a relocation of enchantment rather than a disenchantment um, in contemporary culture, um, I think that opens up the question of what the feeling of disen the feeling commonly called disenchantment or that like in a sort of more explicitly Taylorian model might be dis disenchantment um, actually is. Is it just that certain elements of our lives are disenchanted because other elements wrongfully are? Is it another, you know, an alienation that comes from a certain kind of loneliness because we're cutting ourselves off from other people? Um, I'm not, I don't, I don't have a firm definition in my mind, but I do think that, um, I think the thing that you're talking about um, or that Taylor talks about as disenchantment both is that and also perhaps um, warrants a more robust discussion uh, if you hold, as I do, that uh, enchantment is so completely wedded to um, the animating force of human desire. Yeah. I do think that, um, especially in the internet age, um, so much of our like 
not quite physical, but our, I'll say our visual landscape, the world we inhabit is, uh, it, the engine of it is desire. Um, Eugene McCurher in his uh, Enchantments of Mammon, yeah. of course, talks about capital and money as this like yeah. mysterious divine force. Um, I, I take that and I think this was hugely influential in, in kind of coming up with my own theory, but I think that it is, you know, that you can look at the sort of, I'm always wary about saying the capitalist worldview, but the, the thing that would be described as the capitalist worldview yeah. as one uh, iteration of a desire having a kind of material manifestation or the world running on desire in a certain way. And then the internet is that, but you can see it and literally everything you look at on the internet runs on it is like a desire powered engine. And so I think that the, we, we aren't, we aren't just like in a world where desire is divinized. We are in a world where like desire is divinized and then more and more of the world, it just like runs on desire fumes. Yeah. And uh, what you're saying, mentioning Makar, someone else who kind of builds on the Taylorian idea about this enchantment is um, William Cavanaugh, who I think specifically in his book, Migrations of the Holy, like his whole thesis is that it's not that we become totally disenchanted it's that this enchantment has migrated mm -hmm. other spaces whether it's the free market whether it's the realm of sexuality consumption like because ultimately there's this if you have the anthropological conviction that the human heart human nature is fundamentally ordered towards some transcendent ideal to this augustinian restlessness we could say like that spiritual dimension is never going to disappear it's just going to have to be channeled elsewhere you know, so I, I mean, I agree with you to that extent. Um, and I, I did want to bring up Camille Paglia, who I was telling you before, is a big inspiration for me. And I know you've read a lot of her work as well. Um, I think what's interesting, especially in her commentary on religiosity in America, um, she talks a lot about how there's this like building on Nietzsche's polarity between the Apollonian and the Dionysian. There's this kind of Apollonian um, impulse in America, and especially in like Anglo wasp cultures, to create the sense of order, to create the sense of predictability, to clean up any sense of messiness, of chaos, unpredictability. And inevitably, this kind of impulse is only going to go so far because then the force of nature, the Dionysian element, is going to, you know, it's going to rear its head once again. Um, and there's a lot of when someone assumes that they can impose this kind of order, which, again, Taylor talks about in the beginning of a secular age, like if we naively think we can keep this up for very long, like, you know, it's it's just not going to last. It, it is a naive position. And I think that what she what she sees in the 60s counterculture, but also what she kind of prophetically predicted today in this kind of turn towards sacramental religiosity, whether it's in high church Christianity or forms of, you know, new age kind of witchcraft stuff that we see on TikTok, there's this need for the aesthetic dimension, the, the earthiness, the sacramentality that's missing from a lot of, at least we could say mainline, especially Anglo, not Anglo in the, in the Anglican church sense, but like the, the Anglo-Saxon sense. Um, you know, that, that's, that's very rationalistic. That's very, you know, much an experience of the mind and not one of the body. Um, so no, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on how, like, where do you see this attempt to grasp at the sacramental, the aesthetic, the the bodily experience of spirituality, and in, in what's going on today? Um, I think we we sort of seen different siloed versions of it. Um, I think that that where we have these, um, at least if you spend too much time on Twitter, like I do, um, I think one one of the most interesting kind of meme 
conglomerations of memes uh, that you find are these kind of ways in which certain political identities and certain um, religious spiritual practices converge. Um, I think like the proliferation of like witchcraft is a kind of mm -hmm feminist act. I think this is, it's sort of post-peak, maybe I think it's peak was sort of the post-Trump era of the like resistance witch as the the political figure. Um, but I think that there's there's ways in which um, kind of, not quite Wiccan, Wiccan, that's the wrong word, but like the a general, there's a, there's a sort of left neo-paganism mm -hmm. um, that's a combination of coded as um, internal intuitional spirituality over and against um, the sort of imagined uh imagined sort of trump plus catholic church plus evangelical hierarchy also all sort of conceived of together as like this is the system and we are like we are countering in some way with this like particular image of resistance and mm -hmm. um and bravery but i think that the like more the the weirder and perhaps for me uh analytically more interesting uh to, i don't want to make like moral claims but the more interesting to me to write about is the kind of reactionary version of it um because it it also um and what by which i mean this kind of like cultural miasma of people on the reactionary right who will often kind of conceive of like social justice warriors as being the same kind of like monolithic culturally dominant um force that the resistance which is sort of used to say about trump like I'm thinking of like the way that certain uh, far right neo reactionary figures will refer to it as the cathedral, but like there's this monoculture and we are resisting it. And suddenly, um, everything from traditionalist Catholicism to set of a contest Catholicism to um, Julius Evola tinged like like formal occultist mysticism to like I'm thinking now like Nick Nick Land living in Aleister Crawley's old house like mm -hmm. night like very 19th century occultism. Yeah. all sort of converges on the uh reactionary side of things and i'm i'm interested in particular in the way that there's a kind of like robust tradition of like reactionary romantic reactionary catholic occultism uh in the yeah. late 19th century as as yeah. much as in our own era where this sort of i think that the i won't say it's an intellectual move being made because not very coherent but the sort of aesthetics move being made mm -hmm. is something along the lines of what the what old the we have lost the old gods i mean i think it's in some sense it's it's, it's it is very like post polia or yeah. although i don't think that um maybe not so consciously so but this idea that like yeah. we've lost the old primal forceful magic yeah. there's a real like mm -hmm. even though i think often like traditionalist catholics in this cultural world will focus more on like traditionalist versions of sex gender um that this is like the sexual binary and the idea that we know what men are men and women are women and this is a kind of basis of like this this sort of basis of the real is on um the sort of the sexual binary and on ways in which the sexual binary can be understood as like oppositional mm -hmm. um yeah. in a way that seems to be very much about a fascination with restoring a kind of like primal magic that um is i mean it is historical but it's less it's less historical in the eras that they're looking at and more like a distinctly 19th century like deeply like romantic 19th century does the pre-modern world version of the modern of the pre-modern world um and i think it, it fascinates that that fascinates me precisely because of its blend of 
aesthetics and hunger and the way in which uh, very, very contemporary political concerns are being kind of reframed as this um, collective loss of the real, where what the real is reduced was reduced to or, or or is signified by becomes like certain culture war points. Um, and I'm interested in this particularly as someone who like does think we've lost uh, lost the real, but is um, far more suspicious of the idea that uh, the loss of the real depends on certain culture war, war points. Yeah, no, I mean, I think this whole conversation about like witchcraft, neo-paganism, it's it's overlooked too much because there's there's so much going on here and i and i say this as someone like i grew up in a family that like practiced a syncretic version of like folk witchcraft and greek orthodox christianity um you know so like because take for example my grandmother she would read people's coffee cups to predict their their fortune and it often came true like you know i wasn't just <laughs> for fun but then she would like go to the greek orthodox divine liturgy she knew all the prayers so it was this, this again, this syncretic mix. And like when I was younger, I was interested both in the Christian liturgy, but also in like playing with tarot cards and Ouija. And eventually like I hit a point where I, I realized like, it, I don't know, I was toying with somewhat dangerous spiritual forces that I didn't want to involve myself in anymore. But the point is like, I recognize there is something very real about those forces. They're very much like if for me, it wasn't just like a game or an aesthetic, but it was like, okay, there's there are these spiritual charges in the real world that do have an impact on me for better or for worse. Um, and I'm seeing now with like, I think at least on the left, you see the kind of woke witch phenomenon on TikTok. And like some of it, I think is a genuine engagement with these spiritual forces. Some of it I think is just like, I don't know. I mean, not to knock people who are into manifestation techniques, but it is kind of just like a spiritualization of this neoliberal consumerist kind of ethic that like, I want something and I project it into the universe, and then I get it like, okay, I mean, you could, if you have a credit card, and you know, a good inheritance, then you can basically do the same thing. And it's, you know, sprinkle your spiritual words on top. But on the right, as you're saying, like, a lot of the reactionary positions from like, the Trumpian type, or the Peterson Daily Wire kind, like, ultimately is a neo-pagan position, um, especially when we get into the white nationalism and the, the whatever, the ethno-nationalist kind of narratives, like, it's another brand of this kind of pagan worldview. Um, but ultimately, like, I think going back to Taylor, going back to Pelia, like, there is this, this kind of demand for these more tangible engagements with spiritual forces, whether they're the monotheistic ones, whether they're pagan ones. And, and it makes me think of, like, I know you've written about this as well, like, turn of the century decadence from France, from England, that a lot of them start and it started out as like outright Satanists. Like if you take Quizmon or yeah. to an extent Baudelaire, like we're engaging with straight up satanic. And then that took them the opposite direction to, you know, the very traditional form of Catholicism. But the point is that like their position was very much in contrast to this bourgeois kind of rationalistic one, this Apollonian one that's like, oh, you know, we just have our reason, we have our, we try to create our predictable social order and then everything's nice and clean cut versus okay there are these spiritual forces outside of us that do have a real impact on daily life whether it's satan whether it's god you know the point is there's something more and i and i, I don't know personally like i'm happy to see that people are interested once again in these positions that take up a real engagement with whichever spiritual forces are out there i just i, I think there's a need to to really recognize that though because again it's like 
what I don't like is seeing how like take someone like Peterson who has this kind of reactionary right-wing position and then you have Christians saying like oh he's standing up for truth and it's like okay but that's like that's as much as he may you know engage with certain Christian pundits like that's not a, an actual Christian position like sure ideologically there may be some overlap but like this is fundamentally a kind of neo-pagan one you know absolutely uh, and I, I was sort of this leads me to a point um that I I'm still wrestling with, but I think that I'm coming coming towards uh, affirming more robustly rather than cautiously. And I, I again, I know that at various times recently, Jordan Peterson has um, called himself a Christian. I don't want to um, risk uh, maligning anyone's personal faith in yeah, terms of how sure. he he. Th there seems to be among the traditionalist right more broadly the sort of conception of Christianity that's like a combination of like. These are our allies because they share our traditional goals and like Christianity is good because it like whether or not it's true it's true in this kind of like vague Jungian like primal yeah. sense where it gets you to the like right basic positions um and a there's a kind of real like make your own religion instrumentality to this yeah. that reflects like the wellness culture on the left which is the more obvious target of this mm -hmm. but secondly i think uh, another weird pagany place that uh, left and right converge here is this idea that like there is something that is magic and is spiritual and it has to do with ways in which human beings can manipulate reality which mm -hmm. in turn has to do with our ability to manipulate like language object and symbol the kind of root of certain kinds of cere ceremonial occult magic uh, again going back to the Crowleys and sort of the of the world this idea that like what magic is maybe we're a little too modern to say like we can shoot fireballs from our hands although I do love that that story about like Crowley and Yates yeah. getting into like a magic fight and shelling, yelling spells at each other until I think Yates just kicked Crowley and then he lost the fight which is anyway yeah. um but this idea that like magic is actually the manipulation of reality and you can manipulate reality by like either manipulating people or by kind of manipulating yourself such that your outlook changes, but mm -hmm. that there there is something called magic that is worth practicing ritualistically that has a tangible real world manifestation, uh, but that it does not necessarily involve like breaking the laws of physics so much as operating on this cultural linguistic plane so that like human interaction is the realm of magic. Now, as a novelist, like I think that there is a like good version of this that's something to do with like something about human communication and art is, that is sort of powerful and can potentially point to the good. Like, yeah. I don't want to be like, all language is bad and we should just, I don't know, only, I'm going to say only communicate in mime, but that wouldn't work either. Um, but I think that there's this obsession with like, on the right and the left. And I think this is where like manifestation comes into it, but also yeah. uh, the kind of right-wing neo-pagan obsession with like ceremonial magic as well as um, Christianity as being like, affirmation of Christian truth being useful is this like very, very contemporary uh, human beings are magic or again, our desire is magic and how we manipulate yeah. reality. Um, I'm thinking too of like meme magic as this thing that uh, for, for those of the unfamiliar listeners uh, became this like, what was then I guess the alt-right uh, obsession with getting Trump elected through yeah. like Pepe memes mm -hmm. um, where it was this idea that like we can just, especially in this era of the internet where physical embodiment is even less of a hindrance than in the quote unquote real world uh suddenly magic and reality converge and this is fascinating i'm like i think they're uh onto something as a descriptor of a phenomenon that is mm -hmm. true of the internet yeah. age 
while being like maybe don't fuck with demons even if you think your demons are you and especially not if you think your demons are you um uh, and but i i I do think that they're without uh maybe to be charitable or at a charitable note in this conversation i can see how there is a real hunger for the real or something that is um true uh even as all of us are stuck in this like soup of self-deification and of course going back to he's mole who you mentioned earlier um i feel like he's the pioneer of this trope because um uh laba his 1891 novel about satanism uh, what's fascinating is it's a novel about how boring satanists are in 1891 like he's writing this biography of a this uh, medieval satanist rapist murderer and it's really graphic and really awful but uh like basically he's mole's stand-in is, is sort of constantly meditating like in the old days the satanists would like murder children and there would be blood everywhere and like obviously it was awful but like at least they were doing something yeah. and today i go to these like satanist parties and he goes to the the black mass with yeah. with his lover and he kind of goes like wow this is this is really lame and and, yeah. cringe. <laughs> and you know he has this weird division where he says he, oh, he there's this great line where he basically says like where are you like we're offended, like Jesus Christ, like please come down and like strike us down, or like you know yeah. we won't say that like, we want something real here. And the fact that these like bougie idiots are having this awkward black mass, like I feel like the book is often like misremembered now as this like very spooky book about like creepy satanists, and it's actually mm-hmm. like a book about how bourgeois nineteenth century bored people are hoping that Satan or God or someone will come into the room to 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 lift them out of their their stupor. And even if it does turn in, and then I think this sort of interesting uh, parallel that we do have is that he's Mons, like weird, obs- or Durtal, his character's weird obsession with Gilles de Ray and with like the good old days of murder and transgression, um, I think sets the stage for something we do see in particularly like the transgressive, offen- offensive, uh, or offensive to me at least, uh, language of, of the far right, which is like, can't, like let's be as awful as possible yeah. and there's a way in which transgression and provocation of course you could say this like sod perhaps was the mm-hmm. originator of this although i think sod sod in my mind does not have any like spiritual hungers like sod's just dick um sorry yeah. uh, but uh let's start with with he's onwards uh transgression and perversion almost as like an attempt to like shock god into existing or like shock something shock shock oneself into reality like if we are bad enough if we say the bad enough thing um can can we like lure god out of heaven again and yeah I, don't, I, I, I think it i don't think it was Fismon. i think it was baudelaire who said that like satanism was his way into christianity through the back door uh, i'm not I'm not sure it might it might be i it feel was, like yeah. it was true of all of them so yeah um, of course especially for Durtal. but i don't know i mean i'm a proponent of everybody reading Fismon. i think you know, things will make a lot more sense if people read him because he was onto something. He knew, he knew it was coming. Um, but anyway, so speaking of Wismon, it brings me to your article. I think it was it was twenty twenty in New York Times mm-hmm. about weird Christianity, the traditionalists, distributists, and all that. Um, I don't know. I'm curious to hear. There's just so much to say about this kind of trad phenomenon, especially as it's making its way more and more into mainstream public's attention but i don't know what are what are some things that you see there what are you some things you think people should take note in this take note of in this phenomenon 
So even more than when I wrote the piece in 2020, which was itself a kind of shorter version of a piece that was supposed to exist because post-pandemic, everything got a little uh, chaotic. But um, I think I was interested in this idea that quote unquote traditionalist Christianity, which didn't just mean right-wing reactionary Catholicism, but meant a kind of sacramentally loaded, um, let's say resurrection affirming, um, like super uh, sacramentally and supernaturally truth-claiming making Christianity uh, had on both aesthetic and kind of narrative grounds appeal for uh, the very young and online in a way that uh, combined, let's say, a spiritual impulse, uh, aesthetic impulse, and a kind of like subcultural impulse to like form an identity. Um, the I think the headline that they the New York Times came up with was the future of Christianity is punk, yeah. where I both was like, oh God, like this is gonna make Twitter so mad, but like not entirely wrong. Uh, not because Christianity is punk so much as like so much of what it means to uh, figure out one's identity online with reference to traditionalist Christianity is itself a kind of, it's a very subcultural, like, let's let's piss off the normies or, or define ourselves against the normies uh, way of, of, of looking at it. Um, and I think that certainly since that article came out, um, we've seen, I don't want to talk about Dime Square, but I'll talk about Dime yeah, Square. Uh, for it. The thing, the the uh, the unnamed uh, triangle in Lower Manhattan. Um, that this idea of like being a kind of particularly a right like right wing Catholic or even like set of a contest Catholic mm -hmm. uh, has now become a kind of a pose that in a certain kind of cultural discourse that also includes like the Curtis Yarvins of the world yeah. that also includes like certain post-rationalists that also includes like a number of different uh, mm -hmm. subcultural tribes, uh, basically what seems to me united against the common enemy or specter of the quote unquote social justice warrior, quote unquote woke like Brooklyn literary person who like, to be fair, I don't think I've ever met, who, who don't I think exist as the monolith that they're <laughs> presented as. Like, I think they're as much a like monster yeah. under the bed as anything else, but that this sort of group came together um, perhaps one might say around around a common enemy but with a very like similar to the decadence of the 19th century um a self-understanding that transgression and particularly a, a kind of reactionary transgression was the the best way as a kind of aesthetic mode and pose to combat a certain kind of bourgeois moralistic seriousness that mm -hmm. in their minds uh both removed style from the world and also uh, didn't actually like wasn't actually based on any kind of real moral principles either mm -hmm. um and i think that 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 sort of double fascination which with, with like the modern world is boring and like the wokes are so cringe uh but also hey there is something that we're missing and like not getting from the the, the dominant the, the dominant or seemingly dominant in like media circles culture um those things are are both true and then sort of combine in a way that i certainly associate with like the fond de siècle of like right-wing transgressive reactionary highly aesthetic uh and i think that it's very difficult to disentangle and here this is why i'm deeply wary like i'm wary of i'm as wary as anyone who is also a christian who made a lot of christian friends on twitter can be of faith becoming part of one's brand soup um, mm -hmm. or, or like subcultural brand identity, which is to say, I don't think we can get out of it. Uh, I certainly haven't got out of it. Um, 
but I do think that you do get some very strange bedfellows when your traditionalist Christianity um, means that you're willing to kind of like make alliances with uh, neo-pagan powers. That's yeah. that's just like, I feel like if you're going to be a traditionalist Christian, just like never a good idea or something to be extremely wary of in general, um, yeah. which, is, which is not to say this is the part of the, the podcast where I actually say that Times Square is full of demons. Uh, I'm not actually <laughs> literally saying that. Really. There. I'm sure there are demons there. Uh, but I am. I do but think if, it's But it could be the back door to something better, as Baudelaire uh, said. I don't know. And... I, I think that spiritual hunger is generally good and conversations yeah. about spiritual uh, hunger are very good and a search for moral re realism is a very good thing. Uh, and that all of these things are goods that we should uphold. Um, at the same time, I do worry that the... Uh, Neo, the like right neo-pagan and sacramental Christian alliance, um, which you see both on this like sceny hipster soup level of like the Redskirt Girls are Catholic, but you also see in, for example, I, I do um, like and, and respect uh, Bishop Barron as an interviewer very much, but like Bishop Barron's sort of alliance with Jordan Peterson at one time, yeah. this idea that like the right neo-pagans broadly construed and the like Orthodox Christians, lowercase o, can work together to defeat the common enemy um yeah no. that's that's the point where i think like one can critique the dominant culture one can critique can, can critique all diamond uh, all diamonds excuse me all contemporary ideologies mm -hmm. but like as soon as the uh focus turns obsessively on the quote-unquote social justice warriors as uh the enemy or the number one enemy i think it makes us blind to um more interesting questions of what one might be fighting against or for, uh, and I think it also elides the difference between like, are you're just are you, like what what are your actual issues uh, with this particular cultural ideology that seems more dominant in media circles versus like, what what is your your general uh, approbation for like the normies whatever it whatever they might be, yeah. and if if the normies were all Catholic like, would your punk subculture just go back to pure pure Satanism? Yeah. No, and, and I, I think, I, yeah, I agree with you that like it's not a substantial position in itself. Like it doesn't propose any real answers or solutions. I just I'm super weary of usually older people, normie boomers, whatever you want to call them, who are very quick to dismiss the phenomenon because I think like, and as much as it's not a solution in itself or a, co a real coherent position, like. It's a cultural specimen that needs to be looked at seriously, especially by the people to whom it's a reaction. Because, for example, like when you put that article out in the Times, like I, there were like two articles that I wrote kind of inspired by what you were, what you were kind of highlighting. And the pushback, it's like, I'm going I'm to be specific. And if it pisses people off, then what am I going to do? There is a, a response in National Catholic Reporter written by someone who is significantly older, who was saying like, okay, these kids think they're punk, but like, they're basically dumb kids. They don't know what they're talking about. And I, and I got really pissed off. I was like, okay, well, I'm going to respond response to this saying like, okay, you're old and people are tired of this worldview that you're espousing. So like, rather than like telling the kids to simmer down, like, why don't you look at the fact that okay, yeah, no, this isn't a coherent position, but within it, there's this intuition, there's this cry for something that we've been deprived of. Um, and then the other thing that, like, especially after the Pope did the motus proprio about the Latin mass, I think it's super reductive to pit 
like the trads and the the Novus Ordo, the whatever against each other because it's like within that group there's a whole variety of people who are drawn to whether it's the more dogmatic form of morality and doctrine or the sacramentality the aesthetic vibe of it all um, like there are people who really feel alienated from the kind of dominant Christian kind of ethos or narrative and that's why like I was telling you before I was trying to highlight that the fact that when you go to a Latin mass whether it's whether it's high church Anglican whether it's Catholic um, also in a lot of Eastern Orthodox churches you see a lot of people who are on the spectrum who are neurodivergent you see a lot of queer identifying people also people who just like don't identify with Anglo-Saxon culture in general um, it's it's become a haven for a lot of people who feel very alienated and that's why I feel like if to just write people off as like reactionaries or ideologues, it's like, okay, but why are people drawn to it? It's not purely some kind of, um, you know, it's not purely ideology. Like there's a need there that has to be taken seriously, you know? Absolutely. And and one of the things that I, I remember uh, back when one of the sort of most prominent backlash points to my article was like, this is, this must be this very like white, straight, conservative phenomenon. Um, so again, purely anecdotally, um, mm -hmm. so my version of this um, it, it is actually, I'm a Episcopalian, sort of high church Anglican, mm -hmm. um, or high church Episcopalian, Anglo-Catholic should say. Uh, my parish is, uh, I'd say, the most, uh, definitely the gayest and the most uh, ethnically diverse uh, church I've ever been in. Um, mm -hmm. It's in terms of like, it is compared to both the sort of stereotype of like churches, particularly Episcopalian churches, as being quite... Um, uh, quite monocultural. Uh, that is absolutely not the case. Uh, and I, I think like th this is this is something that I, I don't want to extrapolate like from my one small church that this is true of all churches. But I think it's certainly this narrative that like high smell high church liturgically rich uh, supernaturally affirming Christianity is is something that is like to say that it like to say that it is just a like straight white phenomenon seems to be like the opposite of my yeah. anecdotal truth yeah my and, I, and, I, and we, I think we have to acknowledge like geography makes a difference because like for example if i go to holy innocence in midtown manhattan like super ethnically diverse gender queer diversity clearly a lot of people on the spectrum you got all kinds of people when i go in new jersey in the suburbs it's not the same story um, but again, it's like, I think this kind of horseshoe phenomenon of quote unquote countercultural super postmodern types being drawn to this other opposite extreme of religious traditionalism, like, again, it's not a phenomenon that we can afford to just dismiss or ignore. Um, mm -hmm. But on, on the other hand, like, especially the more like dogmatic Shia LaBeouf type of trads, like, what I think like is most concerning is that a lot of these people really think like, no, this is this is the correct position, like this is a righteous position, as opposed to red scare types who are like, this is a vibe, you know, we're we're LARPing. Like ultimately being a trad is a LARP. Like you're not you're reacting to other forms of performance art or other constructions of identity that you deem to be like, oh, this is this is super worldly, this is super. You know, we're not like that but it's like, okay but any form of performance art ultimately is very postmodern it's very yeah. you know secular whatever you want however you want to use that term so like i when you when you did it in an ironic self-conscious way sure but like the ones who are like no we are the defenders of uh, the true faith it's like no you're not you know you're not like it's yeah. you're, you're you're playing a game you're playing the game yeah, yeah. and 
I mean, I think I think that I do. There is there is time, and and maybe this is my aesthetic mm. rather than like considered intellectual view. But like, there is a place for play and no. uh, you know, joyful play and self presentation uh, that can lead us to a greater truth. Um, I don't think we must all be like painfully earnest all of the time. Yeah. Although I think that That's I have become. Boring. Yeah. At the same time, I think I've come much more to the like painfully earnest end of the spectrum where like, I think, I think earnest, earnestness uh, is a great place to start. And I think that, that, that like at its best, what play can do is like allow us to form relationships with one another to, to like acknowledge how many unknown unknowns and known unknowns, what have you there are, and that play could be a kind of vehicle for exploring ideas and community um but i think the point at which play go goes from a kind of like joyful even child like like okay like, like we're, we're a little bit in the sandbox here we're all figuring this out um you know we believe we we believe the things we believe and yet how do we sort of work this into the our, our full cultural lives is one thing the point at which i think um certain kinds of larping become worrying to me is that there become there's a certain nihilism that I think is at the core of like well none of this really matters anyway so let's just like fuck around and say something crazy yeah and and as I said maybe my like Hezmanian version of like maybe maybe you know troll it like if you troll hard enough like God will come down um I I, I don't want to discount mm -hmm. that there's a, a hunger a hunger there even though I don't want to like stake a, a claim that like this is what's happening yeah. but I do think Works that they're Oscar Wilde yeah I mean but <laughs> yeah it's just like it's like couldn't just do it sooner um. I do think that there is there is something sort of deeply nihilistic in the point where like play as a kind of youthful way of exploring ideas and exploring the ways that ideas might be lived out, which are not always fixed or obvious, uh, turns into a kind of, well, it doesn't really matter what we say. And I think once you once you reach that level of it doesn't really matter, it's all kind of fake, who cares, mm. is the point at which you've like lost the very thing you're looking for. Yeah, I mean, I think there comes a point of maturity where like you find a happy medium between the like, the totally nihilistic sense of playfulness that doesn't recognize, like, yeah, that uh, assumes that nothing matters versus the extreme earnestness, like we are the defenders of the truth. And yeah. like, there needs to be some sense of like ironic self-deprecatory detachment while still seeking something that's genuinely true. Yeah, I mean, I think ironic detachment is the best one. It's a form of humility. Like, it look, is, I'm, yeah. just a, I'm just a person trying to figure out this really complicated thing out. And like, here, here's the best I have. And I think I think that that detachment where like we we all really like should should just like touch some grass and yeah. that that knowledge I think keeps us keeps us honest. No, I think I think that's fair. Um, but I, I did want to ask more just about your experience within Episcopalianism because so you were raised in the Episcopal yeah. Church, right? I mean, I, I'm I'm born and raised in New York as well, so I I was raised. Uh, let's just say I, I was raised going to like a very Christmas and Eastery mm -hmm. uh, Episcopal Church. Uh, my family's um, sort of like Jewish ish, like Jewish -ish, Jew yeah, yeah Jew like Jewish ish, but Christmas and Easter in a kind yeah. of like we're not really observant, but like we have a kid, like christmas like sure yeah uh, and i i was actually i was like a weird kid so i was like mommy can i get baptized can i be catholic because there wasn't like 
okay, fine, it could be Episcopalian because like that's the church nearest us. Uh, so there really was a, you know, other than like weird childhood vibes, uh, I, I think I've said this on other podcasts, but like some kids just got into horses and I just got like really into like God stuff, saints. Was, I, I saw a movie about Joan of Arc, I think that was it. Um, but then um, somehow got, became a academic theologian, would have called myself Christian, didn't think too much about it, still like went to church on Christmas and Easter. And then somehow when I came back to New York, um, after the, my time working at VAR, during the time that I spent, I, I was in England until 2017, uh, off and on for a later period of that, working my doctorate, I got this job at Vox, was suddenly full-time in New York, like fully every, almost everything uh, that I've written about in Strange Rights is something that I've probably like been involved with at some point. You know, I, I did my soul cycle, mm -hmm. did my witch rituals. Uh, uh, and I think that at the end of that process, um, I ended up going back to church, uh, brought by someone I met on Twitter, uh, and realized, uh, oh yeah, maybe this thing that seems that like has actually dominated my entire life so far is a thing I should be paying attention to. This seems this seems very obvious in retrospect, uh, and became a every week church person, uh, and and would call myself a Christian and like robustly like make that a part like the, that is now the sort of grounding philosophical principle is my life rather than simply something that is like part of this modus mort of what I do um yeah, and within that I'm like deeply um I love the Anglo-Catholic tradition uh it does uh I do find it to be uh spiritually that which helps me uh connect with God in the most great way but I'm very wary of like drawing a line in the sand and saying like this is the way to do it I think um you know what I I I'm gonna be if I'm in midtown and there's a church and it's you know a right to church with like guitar music that's fine too that's still that's 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 still church uh, and I'm very wary of um kind of conflating like something that for me is 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 a personal uh help in my faith with mm -hmm. the faith that I think is true and right that like I would defend on non-personal aesthetic grounds. Uh, so insofar as I have been uh, affected by the modern world that I want religion to work for me, uh, as and perhaps we all are, uh, maybe that is why I'm an Anglo-Catholic and not my church does not have like contemporary electric guitar. Uh, but I do want to make that distinction between, I don't know, what what, what we can, wh where the where, where, where church shopping or personal preference makes sense and where it um, perhaps should be avoided. Yeah. And um, why... I was going to ask though, like, because in New York, especially in Manhattan, like, most of the Episcopal churches tend to be more high church, right? Mm -hmm. uh, I I can speak to all of them, but I'd say that there's uh -huh. there are quite a lot there are quite a lot of like there's not just one Anglo-Catholic parish in New York, and um, of the ones that are, um, you know, there's a there's certainly some diversity in like political leaning or mm -hmm. age or what have you um so i think it might just be a function of size of, of the city because uh -huh. i mean at least the church buildings themselves like they're amongst the oldest church oh yes absolutely so like aesthetically speaking the, the architecture really is you know more traditional but the the main anglo-catholic church is saint thomas on fifth Avenue. yes yeah. yes okay. i yeah, was I, i'm no longer a parishioner there uh but i was i mean no i was at one one time and, and it was a really i was confirmed there it's a really yeah. lovely church. Yeah, my favorite one is Church of the Intercession in Washington Heights. That's oh. one of the most beautiful ones that I've seen. But there are so many, so many beautiful Episcopal churches in New York. Um, I do have one last question, somewhat unrelated. Um, current state of Islam, 
different strains within Islam today. What do you see? Yeah, what do you see going on in that realm? Oh, I am not. I am not enough of a specialist to give an intelligent answer. I'm Mm -hmm. I'm afraid, so I'm gonna decline. Uh, Okay. No, because they only. I'll just say this: that like, I'm seeing similar within Christianity, like the more dogmatic kind of appeal of a more fundamentalist position within Islam. Um, but also I think they're starting to emerge the more kind of aesthetic draw, the mystical draw, at least within the Sufi tradition, mm. also within the, the very robust philosophical tradition of Islam that that very quickly gets overlooked because of the polemics of, of ISIS and you know different terrorist organizations. But again, I think what's going on there, especially and also like you see this in, in Wellbeck and submission, like there's a lot of the um these kinds of conflicting tensions within secular world and different forms of religion like you see reflected in islam and in a way that's there are similarities but also things that are very unique very particular to that tradition um but anyway what i i want to ask before we close you have two books coming out this year uh i do so the one that i'm allowed to talk about um is is called uh self-made creating our identities from da vinci to the kardashians it's a cultural history of self-creation of both dandies and and entrepreneurs um arguing why they're the two sides of the same coin uh with the little we got bo brummel we've got oscar wilde we've got nietzsche anyway that comes out in late june from public affairs it's available for pre-order now uh, and then there is a novel I'm not allowed to talk about that will either come out at the end of the year or early next year. Uh, awesome. But if you follow me on Twitter at NotoriousTIB, you'll probably hear about it when I can tell you. Great. And anything else you want to plug, Tara? Uh, no, no. Thank well, you. in that case, thank you so much for coming on. This was fun. Wonderful. Thank you. All right.